Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Roll for Persuasion, your weekly podcast where I chat with creators and entertainers about the nerdy things they love. And I have an awesomely nerdy person with me here today, and I'm going to get to him in just a moment. But before I do, as always, because they're so fantastic that they're always here and they're always taking a little money out of my pocketbook because they make such awesome stuff, I want to shout out Hero Forge, fantastic sponsor of the show, great place to go to make your custom miniatures for your tabletop games, whatever those might be. Literally, I think, endless combinations of things you can do on this platform. So if you have a 12-foot-tall satyr warlock with a hook and a peg leg, yeah, you can probably make that on HeroForge. And they're adding new content every Tuesday. Uh, They always do a fun content drop of new updates, so your options are always increasing. Um, You can always find something new at HeroForge.com. So if you want to go make your miniatures, make your heroes, bring them to life on your table, go to HeroForge.com, check them out, and thank you for their support of the show and for supporting my miniature building habit because uh, I have a problem. But I'm glad they're there to help me out with it. Check them out, HeroForge.com, at HeroForge Mini is on the social. And with that, I want to go ahead and dive right into it. I'm very excited to welcome my guest today, Matthew Kroll, showrunner, executive producer, narrator of Extra Credits channel on YouTube, which is just, I mean, I'll let you kind of explain it more, but it's just a supremely cool YouTube channel. You're wildly popular. Dive right into it. What is it? Oh, well, first of all, thank you for the lovely introduction, Andrew. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm sorry to derail us in the first three seconds I've spoken. I love it. But you're talking about Hero Forge. <laughs> Do you also have a problem? Oh, very much so. I just got into 3D printing. We can get into that later. One of my patrons, actually, I believe one of our, our mods, in fact, made a version of me and one of our other streamers, Will, in Hero Forge. I'm showing you, uh, obviously not good for uh, audio medium, but there's a little me with my cat on there. I just made a Warforged monk. I am all over that thing. So it was, it's always pleasant to be uh, in the same breath as those fine folks. I love their stuff very much. Absolutely. They are fantastic. And I really do like I have too many scattered across my table. And I can say it's because they support the show, but really it's just because I have an addiction and I decide to go to the source to keep that addiction going. We would be doing it anyway. It right. Is, uh, do, do you do 3D printing yourself or do you do order the freshest ones from them? I either order it or I have a good buddy who uh, he does all the painting for um, miniatures for Critical Role. And so oh, he's nice. got a slick setup and I'll just send him my files and be like, hit me with some of that Critical <laughs> Role goodness and then ship him back <laughs> to me i would love to get into 3d printing we'll definitely have to talk about that yeah yeah uh sorry back to our regularly scheduled what we're supposed to be talking about the more off the rails it goes the better the content is is my motto i am glad to hear it and i am now buckled in yeah extra credits is a edutainment i guess you'd say channel on the youtube machine uh focusing on a series on game design history mythology sci-fi and a couple other things whenever we sort of think of it The channel itself has been around for quite some time. I came on board about three or four-ish years ago, and uh, it has been quite honestly, especially we can talk about this more, but I started my knowledge even of extra credits as a fan, and then to come on board and sort of uh, start taking the channel into the future years, uh, I feel very blessed and happy to have been able to do that. It's a bit of a dream come true. It's weird to say the dream job is on the internet, but I love it so dearly. <laughs> and one of the very distinct things, obviously, about your channel for people who might not be familiar is that it's all all like these kind of like cartoon um, yes. vignettes almost explaining these different things. And like you said, anything from like mythology to sci-fi to politics to game design, history, mm-hmm. um, your, your history videos in particular are very popular. I mean, we're talking like millions of views that people are, are going uh, to you guys to learn. Why, why do you think people are so captivated by the way that you y'all, I guess, choose to educate? I think it comes down to, honestly, the synergy between 
the writer and the artist. I'm sort of like, even now, still sort of a fan, and I feel so happy to be able to get their stuff sort of through. But we have a fantastic writing team. Uh, specifically, uh, I want to shout out Robert Rath because he writes most of our history. He has a way of just being able to take hyper-complex topics and turn them into easily digestible eight to 10 minute chunks. Granted, our history series tend to be about four to five parts long, but then we do one-offs and, and other sure. things, et cetera. And he just manages to take complex stuff and make it so fun and sort of easy to learn about. Again, or one of our things that we try to do, one of the tenets basically is, if you're not entertained, you're not going to stick around. Yeah, And we want to make sure that, you know, while we're trying to teach people stuff that they're having a good time while we're doing it. And secondly to that is our amazing art team and the style, this sort of like, we call them bean people, bean persons style that uh, came before my time. Nick and Scott DeWitt are fantastic. A brother duo that's worked on the, the show forever. Ali Throm and her husband, Jordan Martin, also work on the shows. And then we have a artist uh, all the way in Spain, in Madrid, David Hueso, who is absolutely fantastic. So between all of their different styles, depending on what we're doing, it just sort of matches up and gets to this place where hopefully at least we are teaching folks stuff while they're having a good time. You said you've been there for three, four-ish years, but uh, how long has it existed as as a content producer on YouTube? I believe over 11 now. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they, they were one of the first channels that I followed back when I first started watching YouTube, when YouTube started becoming a thing. Right. Uh, then the, this has always sort of been with me into that point. So yeah, it's been a wild ride and, and it's sort of a, I don't know. I keep coming back to sort of dream gig because all of this stuff I'm interested in. And now I get to not only learn about stuff that I don't know, but also, you know, a talk about stuff I'm passionate about specifically, you know, if there's moments in history or a specific myth, or even we're working on an episode on uh, wrestling games uh, <laughs> and a couple things about that. So like just things that like I can be passionate about, or on the flip side of that stuff that I'm that I don't yet know I am passionate about. Sure. There's a lot of content that when we're, we have a Patreon as everyone does, and the patrons can vote on history topics as a whole voting structure. So like they'll come up with things that we weren't even thinking of. And then I work with Rob and we figure everything out. And even just that process is like the coolest thing because I'm like, oh, I didn't know anything about exploring the Pacific, you know, in this specific time period or whatever. Yeah. And now I get to go do that and help produce content that teaches other people as well. So, yeah. Well, that's great. And that kind of answers what my next question was going to be, which is how do you keep from running out of material? Cause I, <laughs> I checked your like Wikipedia, you have like almost 400 episodes or something at this point. And at one point yeah. you think like your own brain would just, well, I'm, I'm out of things to think about. But if you crowdsource from people who are already fans. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Actually, uh, I was just crunching some of them. So the extra credit series, the one that is game design and game culture focused, I think we're creeping in at around like, 491 oh, wow. episodes or something over the course. This is obviously some well before my time and history is creeping up there too. Like I think individual videos were probably, I could look at the number, but it's, it's up there. There's a lot of content and you're right. Having people that are passionate about the type of things that you want to discuss, help you by telling you what they'd like to hear about is invaluable it is it is one of the biggest perks i think of how we create our content you mentioned uh extra credits kind of being one of the first youtube channels that you subscribed to or start i don't know if you could even subscribe back then um, <laughs> i remember discovering youtube in like beta and i was like what is this thing in like yep. 2007 or something were there any other channels that you remember following or kind of being uh 
captivated by uh, in, in those early YouTube days? You know, it's a little bit later in the YouTube days, but the first one that actually comes to mind was another gaming channel, though more focused on comedy. And that was Mega64. Yeah. Are you familiar I with am, them yes. at all? Yeah. Ever since they started like releasing DVDs at cons, like I've been following their stuff version. They, they call their stuff like version. So like they've done version one, two, and three. I think they might be working on four. I don't know. But those guys were always very, very funny. And to be honest, even back then, and maybe this is what drew me to extra credits in the first place, I was more, and I hope this is not dating myself, but I was more into like the new ground stuff. Yeah. Like anything that had a little bit of animation. Like the flash uh, video sort of kind it. of. Yeah. Flash videos. <laughs> you know, ridiculous stuff. I'm thinking of like Charlie the Unicorn. Oh, Charlie the Unicorn. Of course. Like, yeah. like True poetry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, I was more of a, it's weird. Extra credits was one of the only spots that I found myself like continually coming back to. Because I, I honestly, I think it's because they had a pretty solid, like, oh, they release a video so many, like either weekly or biweekly or mm -hmm. whatever it was at the time. I don't remember when everything else, again, and I understand content is difficult, but like, you know, you never know when you're going to get the next thing from whomever. So sure. it was, I think the scheduling actually was kind of also what drew me in as well. So you came on board with them three to four years ago. You'd been a fan for a while. What were you doing prior to show running an internet cartoon? I was working in television. I worked for Viacom MTV for the better part of 10 years, first editing and then producing content over there. And it's interesting. I love television production i maybe one day will go back to it but i will say this while i worked with truly phenomenal and talented people over while i was doing that stuff very rarely was i put on an assignment that i actually cared about like i wanted to make a good product i wanted everyone to be happy i right. you know, sometimes you get to do something fun like I, I worked on for many years the european music awards you go out to whatever european city you're working on and you get to put on this amazing show filled with a bunch of super talented artists but more often than not, it was just like, oh, okay, we got to do this this week or this month or you're on this project, et cetera. And while, you know, paychecks are nice and the people I worked with, I adored, I never really connected with the material. And that's when I sort of started looking more into like, okay, what am I, what am I doing? Before that, I went to film school. I'd made a couple shorts and, you know, a couple of my own little, little videos here and there. And uh, I was like, I think this is a space that I would like to enter because even though the, the television work that I did, I am proud of, it never was really speaking often to my own interests. And yeah. I found, especially now, having done this for a couple of years, I am just a, <laughs> I'm just a happier person because of it. It makes sense. Especially with all the people that you've talked to, Andrew, I feel like it seems like that is a common thread in content creation in, in sort of the more nerdy or academic spaces. Yeah. Yeah, and I am now glad to have finally realized that and uh, sort of shifted my lane to come over here with everybody else having a really good time. Yeah, there's, I mean, you know, it's trite or whatnot to say the whole, uh, you know, find something you love and you'll never work. On one hand, not true. Find something yeah. you love and you will work even more because you love it and you can't say no to anything. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is a distinct joy that you find from like working in those areas with people who are also excited and passionate about the content they're making, the product they're making, whatever it might be. You know, I've certainly, you know, I'm coming up on a year now with uh, with Dorvin Forge, who mm -hmm. we've done some work with you all that at the time when this episode comes out, we'll have been out for a bit. So we'll put a link yeah. in the show notes for people to go check that out. Yeah. But I've certainly found that working in the the tabletop space and, and working with creators and creatives who are, who are like, you know what, I just like to make really cool stuff. 
And I decided I was tired of making cool stuff for other people that I didn't care about. So I went somewhere and started making cool stuff that I cared about. Yeah. I mean, it makes all the difference in the world for sure. Yeah. So not, not to harp on your origin story too much, but <laughs> I am curious, was you moving to extra credits? Was it kind of a manifest destiny, like a, like a knocking down their door, like, Hey, what can I do? Or was it just a good old fashioned job opening? And you're like, that's me that I fit that. So a little column A, a little of column B best way to do it. Yeah. I've, I've told this story before. I went to a PAX uh, years ago. And uh, I think it might have been even, it wasn't my first one, but it was one of the first few. And again, I'm side note, missing conventions terribly, and I cannot wait for it to be safe until we can all go back because that was some of my best times I can remember. And you meet so many fun people and, you know, people that sort of stick with you like tertiarily throughout your life. But it's, uh, there's nothing sort of like my con family. But I went to go see an extra credits panel. And I remember after it was like, oh, this is so fun, cool. And I was like, oh, I'll wait and talk to the folks behind it afterward. And I waited like, I don't know, maybe like 30, 45 minutes. And I was like, the line was not getting shorter. And I was like, nah, I'm good. I, 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 you know, what am I going to say? I love your stuff. Thank you. Like, bye. Right. And so I just went about my con day. And then I went out that evening and went to a few parties. And then on my way back to the hotel, I hit the lobby uh, of the place I was staying. And I will stress this entirely. Totally bone sober. TM. Uh, <laughs> I saw one of the creators and our current studio director in the lobby, just sitting and hanging out. And I was like, okay, okay. All right. Let's get five minutes of sobriety. I mean, not that I was, you know, not. And I just walked up, gave him the business card back when business cards were a little more prominent. Sure. I was like, Hey, I'm a producer over at MTV. I've loved your stuff forever. Like maybe we can work on a show. I don't know. Uh, here's my card. Let's set up a meeting just to chat and see what y'all are doing. And then I left and hopefully I didn't embarrass myself. And then eventually we set up a meeting. I chatted with the folks over there. Uh, we were trying to sort of figure out ways to maybe bring extra credits to the television space. And then slowly but surely as uh, members of the team retired, when uh, Dan, the original voice of the show was retiring, they were like, oh, well you do. Oh, and sorry, side note. I also did voice work and voice acting previously while I was doing producing and whatnot. So they're like, oh, you know how to produce shows. You know your way around the Adobe suite. You know how to do voice work and narration. How would you feel about this? Yeah. And then we got to talking and yeah, that's kind of how I made it. It was literally wandering into the right lobby at the right place at the right time and having some courage and not embarrassing myself terribly. I, I, I embarrassed myself slightly, but it all sort of worked out in the end. Well, and having the the right life experience and work yeah. experiences, you know, to to make that relevant, right? Because, yes. you know, I, I talk a lot, especially with people who come on the show, because almost everybody has a story like that. Yeah. Very few people were like, oh, I woke up and I saw a job listing to be cool on the Internet, and I went to go be cool <laughs> on the Internet. It'd be, co- it'd be great if it worked that way. Yes. Uh, let me know if you see one of those listings. But it's always that mix of making your own luck, like sure, like having the right moment pop up, but you've done enough in your life or before that moment to where you are an ideal solution to whatever problem that moment presents. Yeah, it's everything that you're doing creatively will in some way, if you're doing things for yourself or et cetera, sort of like often work toward something larger than you in a positive way. Uh, at least that's been my experience. I would not have been able to get this job had I not edited a hundred sizzle reels for MTV. Like there, there's just, it, it's the stuff that seems like it's not what you're passionate about in the moment. You can still glean 
either experience or even just like um, the ability to uh, be professional, right? Like that's a huge tenant of this as well is knowing the process of how creative work gets done on a budget in a timely manner. It's what the three things, good, fast, cheap, pick two, right? Like just sort of knowing that in the process of it helps along with exactly what you're passionate about, be it gaming or, uh, you know, tabletop video games, movies, film, television, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that's a good point because I, I, I know plenty of people and I've even been at this point where you know where you want to go and you're frustrated with where you are. So then you just kind of like discount where you are because it's not what you want. You're like, this provides no value to me. I just want to get to, I want to get to the point where I'm working in games or where I'm being creative or whatever. And you don't put the effort and time and focus in to find something valuable in what you're doing that you maybe never know how it translates, but you know, being professional, doing your job well, uh, being someone that other people go, oh yeah, you should, you should work with Matt. He, he is efficient and does what he says he will do. Yeah. I mean, th- those it's funny. People have asked what they should do to get into things like this, but it's honestly the baseline, the bedrock of it is exactly what you just laid out. Make sure you are professional. Make sure you can be relied upon and make sure that you are a clear communicator. And all of those things will translate into whatever creative endeavor or really any endeavor that you're doing. Like sure. that is the, the bedrock of people wanting to work with you is those things that I've found. And I try my best. We all slip. We all mess up. But yeah, I learned that early on from, weirdly, I took a year off before college and I worked at a a small government contractor for like top secret military airplane gizmos. I don't even know you what it was. You can say that you worked at Area 51. It yeah. is okay. <laughs> well, I guess it's declassified soon in like two months, so it doesn't right. really matter. I mean, I didn't even know what I did there. I, I ordered widgets. I ordered the pieces of the pieces of the pieces of right. whatever thing Boeing did, you know, whatever. But I learned that people will want you for things. People will want to work with you. If you're just open, honest, present what you're going to do, make good on your promises, don't overcommit, yada, yada, yada. And that was something I'm so glad I learned before even going to college. Because, you know, once you go there and you're working on projects, be they film or otherwise, like if you're in a group, I mean, how many of us know in high school, college or whatever, even life, right? Like there's more often than not people that don't follow that and it makes it difficult. And I mean, who are you going to work with again? The person who delivered the thing they promised or the person that like did not. (laughs) It ends up being a pretty simple answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a big pivot back to uh, something you said previously, as you mentioned, you are the narrator. Um, Mm -hmm. You clearly have a fantastic voice. Or you just have a really nice microphone. I heard that all the time as a photographer. You, your camera takes really nice pictures. Um, so maybe your voice isn't great, but you just have a great microphone. I'll, I'll, the microphone's very nice. I will say that. <laughs> so, so you're doing like, like voice acting and voice work. Um, I like to ask voice actors this. Like, and, and I usually get the same answer, but I still ask the question. How important in VO, whether it's commercial or you know, entertainment, audiobooks, TV, whatever, web graphics, whatever it mm-hmm. might be, how important is having a distinct voice versus having a good grasp of delivery and tone and uh, performance? Or is right. there a third thing I'm not thinking of? My experience is mostly, I'd say, limited to some some television VO work, commercial stuff. I've still yet to be in a game, and I'm absolutely chomping at the bit to do that. So anybody, who you know, reach out. I'm I'm around. But as far as my experience goes... For me, it's been, I guess, the 
tonality of my specific voice that people want. I feel like every, I, I used to call it in my commercial work, I'd call it the poor man's Don Draper. Like I can go deep and I can do the car commercial or I can do the, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. But I've really enjoyed sort of the other aspect of it, which I don't think I've been able to really flex a lot. And that's sort of the versatility, right? Or at least if your voice can't get to a place where like the person, the producers or whoever you're working with feels like they're looking for Mm -hmm. trying to be able to drill down into what you think they want the character to be or an interesting choice around it that it is within your range that you are comfortable with. Cause I mean, worst case scenario, you'll at least sound pretty good while not being what they're looking for. And best case, you might even show someone something that they weren't expecting. So, so for me, I think what has helped me the most is my, my specific, I guess, style of voice, but also it is fun on the off occasion where you can walk into something and have it turn out to be something completely different. I worked on a show for True TV back in the day called um, uh, Hack My Life. Okay. And it was basically like, oh, like it's, you know, fun host teaching you silly things about, you know, uh, you can stretch your shoes with freezing bags of water and, you know, that sort of, you know, whatever. But they had this section called Hacks from History. And they wanted sort of like an old timey, like 1930s thing. And then you just, you turn it on, you do the thing. And like, that's more of a, that's a gimmick. Right. But it was something that like, you can turn up and down based on your tonality and do a bunch of other different stuff. And I did not think I would get that thing. And I shot for the fences with a silly voice I knew I could do. And that sort of went from there. But I, I do think for me personally, and again, I imagine you have you've spoken with far more active, working, talented people in the voice acting industry than myself. So um, I know that they might have different answers, but I think specifically for me, it is just sort of what I sound like. Well, and, and that's why I do ask the question, because I do think it is interesting that people tend to have somewhat varied answers. And I think it speaks back to knowing yourself and knowing your strengths, whether that's vocally or you know professionally, being professional, yeah. showing up on time, executing. Yeah. And, you know, some people just do goofy voices well, and that's their wheelhouse and they can jump in and out of that. And that's great. And some people are just very, you know, and so mm-hmm. knowing yourself and having practiced and done preparation um, is really kind of what puts you in the position to, uh, you know, to land those gigs. A hundred percent. Have you done voice work? Oh, no, it's just the decade long dream that I've never gotten around to doing. This is my voice work. Ah, no, I was going to say, because again, you too have a phenomenal voice, not to keep doing the, the pat each other on the back thing. But the first time I even spoke with you when we were working on way back in the day, when we were working on the beginnings of the uh, Dwarven Forge collabo, I was like, oh man, this guy's like butter. I was like, this is, this is very, very nice. I'm so putting like, that yeah, on my Twitter bio. <laughs> Andrew, like butter. Like butter. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks. I'm, I'm going to ride that. Uh, I'm going to ride that compliment for a good three or four days. So, uh, so thank you. <laughs> No, of course. Real quick before we dive into the rest of the show, I do want to give another shout out to a, another fantastic sponsor. And it's timely because I think we're going to talk about some nerdy shit here in a second. Mm-hmm. And this is a company that will, of course, enable some of that nerdiness for you. And those are my friends over at Die Hard Dice. Uh, if you're like me and you play tabletop games, there's a good chance that you like rolling dice. I sure do. I play mostly, I play in person, I play digital character sheet where you can roll dice. But I just, uh, there's something about rolling there. There's something about the, uh, like the mm-hmm. you know, little ASMR here <laughs> and diehard dice makes some beautiful, uh, shiny math rocks for you. Go to dieharddice.com. Check them out. They do great work. They're a small company and I love small businesses in the tabletop space because they're so creative and they're so uh, willing to work within the community and, and benefit and give back. And I just, I love everybody over there. 
And if you use the code Roll Persuasion, you will save an amount. I'm not sure how much. It could be 10%. It could be 15%. You might say, Andrew, if you were a professional, you'd be aware of what your discount is. I agree with you. I would even posit, if I may, that you are such a professional that you know the enticement of the, the mystery of what the discount could be is even more of a driving force. You might even say that my day job is marketing and that's all, it's all, this, you're seeing behind the curtain, this is all manipulation. Everything that's happening right now, but now you're curious, you're gonna go dieharddice.com, you're gonna put something in your car because you have to, you're gonna put the code in, what could the discount be? Regardless of what it is, it's there. And at that point you're hooked, we got you. Yeah. We got you, but it's good to be hooked because Die Hard makes fantastic dice. Uh, they're beautiful, beautiful, lovely people. So go check them out. When you do that, you support the show as well. You help me uh, make cool content and chat with cool people like Matthew and Extra Credits crew and, you know, other fantastic folks out there. So uh, thank you. Go to dieharddice.com. Check them out. I will say, I too have, have dabbled in the digital rolling space. Back in the day, we did a streamed uh, D&D one shot mm. written and DM'd by our phenomenal uh, community manager, Arthur. And we all had, we did digital dice so they could see. Um, we used Fantasy Grounds and a couple other things. And when we did that, I was like, if we do this again, I need to be able to roll physical dice. Like, I just want to do it. Nothing against those systems, but there is something about the tactile function of dice on board or, you know, in tray that is something you cannot, you cannot emulate. I don't know if it's just like the, the weird sort of lizard part of our brain that like believes in chance and how right. we sort of perceive that. But there's something that makes it slightly more exciting. I, I've reached the point now, and we just wrapped up this past weekend our year and a half long Curse of Strahd campaign, um, which was epic and wonderful and ended in all the beautiful ways. But I, my sweet spot now is I roll my D20s and I roll, you know, kind of special effects dice. And then I leave the math heavy rolls, especially as you get to higher levels. I leave that to D&D Beyond and let it mm. calculate my 37 modifiers <laughs> unless you're doing something like a fireball and you just want to pick up a bucket of D6 yep. and dump yep. it on a table. Uh, it's great to have that option. I want to ask you a question now because you brought up Strahd. I am starting my first Strahd run ever. I'm DMing it uh, for an in-person game. Ooh, okay. And most of my tabletop experience has been me writing my own campaigns, designing my own worlds and things, etc. And I don't normally do out-of-the-box stuff, but I I loved reading it all the time. And I just, I didn't have the time to make a full-blown, you know, universe this time. So I was like, I've always wanted to run Strahd. I'm three in, they're just getting out of Death House. Yes, yeah. Or Durst Manor, as we should be calling it, because when you call something Death House... It's a bit of a giveaway. Players don't trust it. What could be happening in this house? What could be happening? I hope it's cookies. Uh, I, I, my question for you is, if you could tell a person running Strahd for the first time one piece of advice that you think could help elevate the campaign to the next level, what would that be? Can I give you more than one? Yeah, oh, please. Yeah. Because I'm going to give a big shout out to my, my DMJ, who is fantastic. So I knew a bit about Strahd going in. I've never mm -hmm. run it. Uh, and, and Jay and I have chatted some my DM about it throughout the game. And after we get past certain moments, he'll kind of give us a peek behind the curtain. Like, hey, this was in the book. This I homebrewed. I thought this didn't work, so we did this. The thing about Strahd and what he has found most helpful what I think made our game really awesome, among many things. Um, there is a, because it's been out for a while, there's a whole community around running Strahd. There's a Curse of Rods subreddit that is just full of like, hey, here are the major holes or kind of pitfalls or things that once you get to it, you're like, that doesn't make sense. Why would they do that? And here's what thousands of people before you have done to fix it. So mm -hmm. I would very much suggest going and checking out that Reddit community because okay. um, they offer some, some great solutions to some, some basic issues. 
minor spoiler alerts if you haven't played Strahd. Yes. Big bad of the game is Strahd. Unless you run him really well, can be a bit of a letdown. Because the way they write, and I don't know if you've read the whole book yet. I've read most of it, okay. so yes. I, I think it can be hard to play an on, omnipotent, you know, evil guy who's like, I could kill you, but I'm not going to now. <laughs> Twirl yeah. the mustache. And on the subreddit, what my DM did is he brought in this idea of the dark powers of Barovia um, to entice each of the characters. So at different points, the characters made deals with the dark powers, and I don't remember how much is in the book and how much isn't. And so then when you go to this Amber Temple, you're engaging with them. And at the end, instead of simply killing Strahd, you have to kill Strahd and free him from Vampyr, his dark power. And so there's like a secondary boss battle. Nice. And anyway, so, so that was one of the many ways that I think that, that he improved upon this game by taking essentially crowdthink or crowdsourcing some solutions to some, you know, some, some narrative problems that I think Wizards has improved on as mm-hmm. they've continued to write more books. But I do think there are a good amount along with the racism and uh yeah. curse of strahd so yeah i take the racism out too that's my second point yeah that's already that's already done we've we've yeah yep 100 <laughs> percent on that one i've actually looked at some of this the curse of strahd reloaded off that reddit thread mm-hmm. yeah had a really some really wonderful ways to make durst manor feel more like it's part of the world and not just like here's a dungeon that means nothing right which was very helpful and the dark powers it's so refreshing to have you say that because i've tied one of my pcs back to a a dark power themselves and they're tasked with a certain thing and i'm, I'm sort of building pieces around the yeah, idea that yeah. they're being led there to stop strahd but i'm also leaving doors open for hopefully some fun stuff where like the players might have to choose who they want to align with either strahd or the dark power like mm. you know stuff stuff like that yeah and see where it lands that's another thing about it it's a great sandbox you can you yes. can mix and match and make it however you want out of all the modules i've read it feels the most like it took and learned from the best elements of open world sandbox video games and also threw away all of the nonsense that you you don't need and it just sort of plops you in this space you got the one map you're good it's full of interesting stuff and has space for you to do like your own stuff yeah i was i was kind of floored by it because again it feels the most different from most non just pure campaign setting things right like it's normally one or the other. It's here's a world or here's your adventure. And this is like, why not both? I haven't watched all of your game design series videos, but I'm curious. Maybe you've covered this already or maybe mm-hmm. it would be a good subject for a future Ooh. one. There's that balance right between both having an open world with enough boundaries to where you feel comfortable exploring. But, you know, like you're not going to run off the edge. You're not overwhelmed by options and choices. And some of the design even of the map like lets you know just at the beginning, you probably shouldn't try and go up that mountain right away. You might not be ready for it. So there is some inherently really good design and making it feel very open, yet still give you a bit of a pathway. But yet enough happens and it's small enough for you as the DM to be like, okay, well, while they're here, this is happening in Velaki or this is happening mm-hmm. in Kresk. It's not overwhelming for you as a DM to keep track of what's going on everywhere, but it's big enough the players can feel like they live in it. Yeah, no, 100%. And we've touched on elements of that throughout different videos and actually i think we have one coming up specifically from a level designer that might touch on that as well it's all about at least in the video game space it seems it's all about and i guess here too it's all about how like figuring out where the rails should be and also knowing when to jump them Mm -hmm. or to be more specific planning what rails will be jumped if at all possible yeah you know anything can spiral and spaghetti into madness but when when a system or a world or a module or a game and its levels sort of set up like 
I use this as sort of my gold standard, at least right now. I don't know if you played The Last of Us 2. I was a, I, not not too. I was going to bring up The Last of Us as an example of good rails that you don't see. Yes. So I'm going to bring up uh, Cyberpunk and The Last of Us, right? Cyberpunk's world, the second you step into it, you're like, Night City looks amazing. It's huge. Oh, my God. Like, there's I can do it. This is phenomenal. You spend 30 minutes in it, and you're like, oh it's all the same or it's all kind of window dressed. That's not to say anything about the story or like anything like sure. that, but like the feeling of you being in the place, I can see the walls. I can see where, you know, or, or the lack thereof that also kind of hurts it. Last of Us, specifically part two, gave me the exact right amount of exploratory space where I felt like I could find new things in unexpected places but it also corralled me, but I never once felt corralled. Yeah. And that is some dark game design wizardry that I am in awe of every time I see it. Like, I never felt like I couldn't go over a wall. I just didn't want to. And that's the real trick, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's not even putting the invisible wall there. It's building literally the entire game and your experience from the controls, the weight of your character, everything, to think like, I could, I don't want to. And maybe you can't actually, but you're never yeah. going to find out because... 90% of the time a player is not going to go there. And, and yeah, I'm sure excessive hours of crunch uh, went into that and people's lives were ruined, yeah. but thank you because it makes our game better. That's a, that's a oof, crunch is a whole different, a whole different, not, I, I, I will, I will yeah. crunch in the gaming industry is absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, it's a rampant issue. And I love, I love it when companies acknowledge that and maneuver themselves around to avoid it like um super giant like with hades right like mm -hmm. that that is a an example of a game that came out wonderfully did not destroy its team and again it's all different budgets are etc etc but yeah it's we we need to be a little in the game space in particular and a lot of other spaces really be more open about these crunch scenarios and and avoid them at all costs yeah and we could very easily go off into an hour-long side tangent about capitalism and the gaming industry. Um, we could. Maybe, maybe we'll do that on another episode. <laughs> do you want to get sad? <laughs> that, that could be, hey, here's, here's an idea for a okay. podcast. All right. Very original. Two white guys. Yep. Oh, great. So already, yeah, perfect. No one's filling that space. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're really covering a niche. Uh, and the show is just called Do You Want to Get Sad? And we just talk about all the sad things, about the things you love. And I'm sure someone's already done it, but uh, I think I think it's a real winner. And specifically, not angry, just sad. So you won't even get the rage clicks. We'll just get title is I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. Oh yeah, I, I'm. There's probably only like three or four podcasts. <laughs> we'll workshop it. It's fine. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So you know, based obviously on our conversation, you are clearly a, a, a nerdy fellow. I hope you don't mind my saying no, that. Oh, that's mean, beautiful. I think anytime that we've we've been on a call, uh, you've been wearing a Super Nintendo hat, which is awesome. You've got He-Man in the background. Yep. We're talking about D&D. What was your first gaming love, tabletop video game otherwise? What kind of caught your eye and was the gateway drug where you were just like, yep, this is, this is the thing I'm into? Well, I... I ooh, I think, to be honest, the first time I remember thinking about, not, not as a profession, but just as something as like, ah, this is designed. Oh my gosh, stuff just doesn't exist and I'm interested in. Like, as a child, as a young child, weirdly, was the infuriating game Shoots and Ladders, or Snakes and Ladders, as it's sometimes called. Mm -hmm. And I remember playing it and having that moment, that wheel moment of just clicking, being like, Oh, this just isn't a thing that's always existed. Someone designed this. Okay, why is this this length? 
Well, and then you sort of start to see, and especially I've actually, because I've I've thought about this game in my adult life, and I've gone back and looked at like my old board. I'm like, this is unbalanced and a nightmare. But it got me thinking about how those things sort of function, right? And then I started after that, I feel like just sort of looking through media that I consumed. You obviously, especially if it's great media, you sort of just like have it wash over you. It is a it is an experience, and I think that's what the creators sort of want it to do. But then I always go back and like play a game again or watch a film for a second time, et cetera, to sort of like see, see sort of how the sausage is made. And I think as far as a gaming space was, every new thing kind of just took me into that direction. I remember, you know, even back to the first castle. I, I know now we're just on vampire stuff, but the first Castlevania NES, uh, it's on my mind right now because I actually just went home to deal with some family stuff and uh, back to my, my old bedroom, my childhood bedroom. And I found my NES. Oh, wow. And I ripped it open and I cleaned it. And I managed to get... No, no, not like that. Because that'll... That'll, that'll actually mess it up. You clean the contacts properly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I did that. I mean, that's why it didn't work right. this last weekend. Uh, and I finally got Castlevania 1 to boot up. And I was like, all I want to do is play Castlevania 1 right now. That was another game that really knocked me into the space of like, oh, like the narrative's not super strong. But I was like, ah... I see what they're trying to do with their limited scope. This is great. And then, of course, when my friends are like, hey, have you heard of Dungeons and Dragons when I was like 12 or whatever? And mm -hmm. I was like, I mean, I like the ideas of both of those things. What what could this be? I mean, that <laughs> well, blew. The ironically, you're going to play a game that has very little of both of those. But let's I try know. it. Yeah. I know. Well, not not when you're 12, though. Oh, when fair. you're 12, it's all Dungeons and Dragons. Because, <laughs> uh, again, maybe it was just my friends. We weren't that creative. But. The idea that you like someone built a set of rules again, it goes back to what we were saying before loose enough for you to do basically anything you want, but then putting you into a set of rules that won't let you completely spiral out unless you're again a 12 year old. Like that to me was like, I cannot believe this existed. And th since then, I've fallen in love with a ton of different systems. I, I moved on to Pathfinder for a while, I've done Vampire. Uh, World of Darkness, of course. I even, my one I actually talked to Nate quite a bit over at Dwarven Forge about is Rifts, mm. is a a phenomenal world design from the late 80s, early 90s from Palladium. The system is bad. It is the very definition of power creep, and it feels very 90s. There's some some stuff throughout it that could be easily changed or dropped, as we've talked about. But that was my first experience, too, of like, oh, it's not just medieval. This is post-apocalyptic future like whatever this could be current day this could be you know any of this stuff and then just letting your imagination run with it tabletop has been with me for my entire adult life most of my childhood as well and it served as both recreation friendship building structure lesson in storytelling and i credit more so than almost anything dming and playing in tabletop games has made me such a stronger writer there's always room to go of course i'm not great but like i can look at lessons that i've learned and i'm like oh yeah that was DD, or that was that one vampire game right like you just learn how because it's a combination it's a combination of you acting or you playing characters and you in situations where you have to think on the fly so there's no script there's no nothing yeah. and you kind of have to just go and i find that some of the best training for when you have to get inside a character's head in a script like you, you, you've been there before if you've played a bunch of tabletop stuff. You can sort of dig deep into that, and I find it very helpful. Yeah, you can be very aware of uh, 
you know, times, not just times where you're like, oh, we played this game and a thing went really well. And I remember how that felt. So I'm going to put a similar thing into my script or whatever I'm writing. Um, I think, I think standout moments too can happen when something didn't go well, or you've, or you felt Mm -hmm. that another player or maybe even yourself was trying to force a story a certain way. And you're like, oh, that doesn't work. And I maybe didn't realize that didn't work until I was like in it. It draws your attention to it in a way that maybe a normal writer's room or just even solo scripting process can't. It's an active, you learn those things actively. It's not something that you get a note on in your script being like, oh, so-and-so wouldn't talk like this because A, B, and C, or like this isn't the right vernacular for the time period, et cetera. It is something that you try and you can see or at least feel and then go back and extrapolate why it didn't work actively in the moment. And that is a level of value to a creative process, I think, that I could not do anything that I do sort of without, so... I'm very thankful for the tabletop games and the communities around them. And it makes perfect sense as, as tabletop gaming has become more and more mainstream over the last couple of years. Um, you of course do have, you know, actors and performers who are like, Oh yeah, I've been playing D and D. I played it growing up that has impacted my performance, but I feel like you hear uh, just as many, if not more writers, producers, mm-hmm. um, even cinematographers who are like, Oh yeah, this was my first foray into creation, not just performance, not just, you know, role play, but into learning how to tell a good story, how to structure, you know, a good three acts, whatever it might be, and, and put it in front of people so they could enjoy it. And uh, yes, it's an invaluable tool for yeah. all that training, for sure. And it's just fun. Like it's fun as hell. That's, that's the other thing. You're learning all of this stuff while you're being a warforged monk or something like there's just like it's the perfect synergy of educating yourself and learning a skill while also just playing. And that's something that I have have not experienced sort of all in that package other than and in that way. So if they could just find a way to get that same experience into going to the gym, I'd be so <laughs> fit. Man. Well, uh, I don't know. This is not not exactly what you're looking for, but I am going to give a shout out to a specific game. And I know it was all the rage at the beginning of the pandemic, but the ring fit on the switch oh yeah yeah have you seen that thing i've seen it i switched to a switch light which has now put me out of the world of being able to do that so gotcha i will say that was the most fun and i still do it on occasion but that was the most fun i've ever had working out okay. it was just like i'd never looked forward to it and again it's the gamification with a very light silly story about like getting elements for like smoothies and fighting a dragon that's way too swole for his own good <laughs> But it did get me excited about exercising and then sort of trained me in a way like, ah, yes, this thing corrected my form while I'm playing a game. I know how now how to do a squat correctly. Mm-hmm. Like there's just sort of, I don't know, it's not the same. It's like 10% of what we've been discussing, but it is a, it was a surprisingly effective tool. So it's possible they need to combine ring fit and LARPing or something mm. into a full you know, and the next thing you know, you're doing CrossFit and armor and you don't really know how you got there. Slap that VR headset on there. And I think we're, I think we're there. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what's going to happen when we have really immersive VRs. People are going to exercise while they do it. They're not going to yeah. go the Wally route and just like, <laughs> I think we're going to see sort of two different styles of game. Cause the second that we can figure out, and I know there's, there's companies doing stuff. I've never even in like show floors or things experienced like, you know, those yeah, like, directional run platforms. Mm-hmm. I've done those in a VR setting and it in no way has it felt for me remotely true. And at that point I'm still sitting in my chair. The second you can give me a holodeck, 
we're there. Like that's I'll I'll work out all the dang time. That that would do it. <laughs> we're coming up on the end of things, but I did going back to game design real quick. I want to throw one thing past you because one of my favorite, and as much as I tried to tell myself early on that, like no, no, I'm into big, massive open world storytelling. I love it because stories. I have a hard time caring about stories in video games. Just gonna mm-hmm. be honest, not my sure. Thing. What I love. Uh, I love I love loot grinding. I'm that guy Diablo for days, mm-hmm. but I love a rogue like games. I love random generation. Have you played yep. like uh, Enter the Gungeon? Or you mentioned Hades. Enter the Gungeon is one of my all time favorite oh. games I have ever played. I I play ten to twenty runs a day, just casually. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. What's your sort of go to gun that you always smile when you get? Is there one? Do you have like a? I, I'm not saying most effective. Yeah. I'm saying that you enjoy. I actually have the the physical Ammonomicon on my oh, coffee really? table in the other room from really? uh, Special Reserve. I think did it. Uh, it's beautiful, man. It it's hard because I tend I'm more like oh I get a gun. I'm like man I hope I get duct tape or really good synergy. Yep. Just so I can just go insane. Uh, you know what? It's really it's really simple. But I like the AK-47. It's I like good. having a big clip. I like accuracy. I'm an accuracy whore. So if I can absolutely positively have to kill every last person in the room, expect no substitutes or accept, excuse me. I almost got that quote right. Even minus the swear. Yeah, no, I love the AK is great. The tentacle, I forget what it's actually called. It's it's my, that's just my like easy mode. Like I was like, oh, okay, I can relax a little bit. Pop, 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 pop. Sorry, I derailed your question. So you like rogue light games, which basically, and again, I guess the difference, if there's even a remote semantical argument is rogue like is more specifically like a restart no matter what and a rogue light is i believe slight progression as you go like gungeon mm. you unlock guns you can right, find even right. though you don't start with same them. with hades yeah yeah so yep. so ro- i actually enjoy both um yeah. but i think rogue light is a little more fun because it's always tantalizing you right because yeah. you're always so i'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that particular game design or mechanic because i think i think lots of games have tried it and i can think of a few that do it really well but I think it's much harder than people might think. I think it is as well. I am want to give a shout out to a game that just got uh, recently released, and I do wish that it was on more platforms, but I understand why it is not. Uh, Returnal on the PS5. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, and I know PS5s are in incredible short supply I now. I have due to the, one. Oh, dude, dude, if you like roguelite games, okay. Returnal is easily my favorite new. i'm getting very excited right it's now. so good so okay returnal does all the things you like in gungeon okay but picture if gungeon and don't get me wrong i love gungeon's world i think the comedy is great i think it is phenomenal picture gungeon wrapped in a narrative of the alien films okay and so it's dark it's sort of geiger-esque it's a 3d bullet hell uh, third person roguelite and the double kicker is you play as this astronaut named Celine who knows that she is dying and going back to the beginning. It's in the narrative. Mm, like day after tomorrow kind yes, of thing. Yes, it's live, die, repeat all over the place. So like you add on to that super tight combat, the the procedural generation of the levels, like it's weird. It's almost like tile sets, right? Like it's the same as Gungeon 2. But like I've noticed often in 3D, specifically third person shooter type games when they try to do procedural generation, I often am like, oh, I understand this. Like I get it, like whatever. The level of detail, I've only made it to three of the six biomes, I think at this point, like it's, it's, hard, as, it's hard as hell. Like it'll last you for a while. 
it still feels fresh. Even if you know the area that you're at, you procedurally unlock different things like a grappling hook or like, and it's like hook shots for days, mm-hmm. like all this stuff. And this is the, the icing on the cake and what I think helps make roguelites special when they do it right. You find audio logs of your previous self slowly going insane as you progress. So this, there's an overarching storyline that's happening the entire time. Okay. Gungeon kind of does this in a little bit with sort of like the histories of the characters. It's very light handed. This is more Mm. heavy handed, but like there's mysteries in this game that I am not only excited to go back and like, you know, inch my way forward, unlock a new thing, you know, that I can find, et cetera. But I'm like, I want to know what happened to Celine. Why did she crash? What is the white shadow signal? And why are there tentacles everywhere? And it's it's wonderful. I cannot sing its praises enough. This has been Matt Schill's Returnal for about five minutes. I, I was playing it last night. It's one of those games where you're like, oh, I blinked and it's one. Oh, no. Right. But I think the reason why, it, when the best roguelites work is when you can find that hook that makes you want to keep going back. And that's funny. I know that um, Dark Souls, of course, is not uh, a roguelite. Or, or like, but there, there's elements to that where like dying is the process. Like this is, you will get better because you are learning things. Like I, I love anything where it's not just bigger number, go up, kill bigger number, better. I like it when I can learn and my play improves. And I've noticed that with dark souls and that with Gungeon, And I've noticed that with returnal half of the, the skill you get is like actual skill and not just unlocking more strong things. Well, that, Sorry, is, that, that was a- no, no, that was everything I needed uh, because <laughs> I'm always on the lookout for more and it's hard to find ones that really scratch the itch. My first one was a game called Rogue Legacy, which I think came back mm-hmm. in like 2013. Yep. What I loved about that is not only procedurally generated, you were kind of slowly upgrading things, but your character was random. So your character abilities would be random. Sometimes you would have different abilities or you'd be, uh, I'm trying to remember, they would have random things. Like sometimes you would fart as you jumped and that would not do anything, but sometimes you had double jump and sometimes you didn't. Right. So that was kind of always a hook is like, am I going to get this character? I'm never going to play this one again. I hope I don't mm-hmm. fuck this run, run up. And I think they actually just released a sequel. So that's on my list. But uh, I believe they did. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Rogue Legacy 2 looks like it came back last year. So nice. I'm gonna have to check that out. But Returnal. OK, it's exciting. I'm, I'm curious. I've never played a 3D, you know, third person roguelike game. And it is also a bullet hell. Like you'll, you'll notice patterns. Have you played, there was a PS4 game uh, called Rezogun. No. It was like almost like a Gradius sort of like you're a plane and you fly, but instead of going down a screen, it's a circle. So okay. you're like, it's flat. Like your plane's always in the foreground. And as you're flying, it's like you're going around a cylinder. Mm, okay. It's funny, the design, I, I'm going to butcher their name. House Marquee, I think is the name of the developer. But you can see sort of like, the guts of some of their old games and the way they've done bullet hells before, like the enemies all shoot colorful, different orbs of light and you know, blue ones are normal. Red ones are bad. Like it's very gungeon. You'll feel right at home. And it's because the combat is so tight. You have sort of a zoom mechanic instead of a dodge roll that lets you have iframes and not get hit. Yeah. It's so similar to gungeon in style, but like actual uh, visuals and tone are just completely different. Well, that's great. I'm going to download that literally when we're done so that I can yeah. uh, I can play it tonight. Let me know how it goes. I will. Uh, dude, this is awesome. Time's flown by. This has been yeah. fantastic. I, I appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. This is uh, I always, always love coming on and talking with with awesome folks like yourself. And we did. We kind of went off the rails and just started <laughs> going about, you know, the nerd stuff. That's 
That's the whole idea. Like I, I want people to feel like they're listening into a conversation at a Starbucks between two really nerdy people. Except uh, the music isn't as loud mm-hmm. and the coffee is better. Hopefully, wherever you're right. you're drinking. Yeah. But that's the vibe, and I think we pulled it off. So you know, I think here, we did. here's to us. Yeah. Clink. Do Cheers. you or do extra credits or anything have something coming up that you're excited about that you want to share? And if not, no worries, because that's a question that puts you uncomfortably on the spot. No, no, no. Believe me, I can I can uh, I've been trained to talk about my own I, to shill my wares uh, quite yes. a bit. So let's see. As we mentioned, uh, Dwarven Forge, how you and I even met. We are doing a collaboration uh, with Dwarven Forge on an episode. Uh, Nate Taylor, their creative director, uh, wrote an episode for us about Basically, six guiding principles that Dwarven Forge uses to foster people designing with their design. So, like, what, you know, even it goes back a little bit to, like, you know, game design in general. But, like, if you're making pieces for other people to design a thing, be it physical terrain for tabletop games, be it, you know, Minecraft or Roblox Mm -hmm. or any of this stuff that fosters creativity, what are six guiding principles that can help you make better tools for your players to make enjoyable things and surprise you along the way. It's a phenomenal episode. It'll be out by the time this drops. Also, oh boy, I don't know if it'll have hit yet, but we're, again, this, this, the whole thing is the vampire show. We're doing a five-part history series on Vlad the Impaler. Uh, yes. Vlad Dracul, okay. Okay. Which is a phenomenal, phenomenal series written by our writer, Rob, and, uh, and illustrated by um, Allie, who is, again, who brought, uh, Allie is one of those people that I can never get over. She can bring terror and then make you sort of laugh in the next frame. It's it's unnerving, but it's beautiful when you see it. Uh, so please be on the lookout for that. Also, I will show one other thing. I, I too, am in the podcast game uh, with a phenomenal director friend of mine named uh, Shahir Dowd. We do an, uh, a podcast erroneously titled The Only Podcast About Movies, where we discuss a new film every week and go through, and we're, we're deep in. We've been doing it for like, I think, five or six years and haven't missed a That's week, awesome. which is terrifying. Ow. Andrew, if you ever have a film that you want to talk about, that even if you didn't like it, just something that you are interested in, please reach out because I love talking to people that are passionate about a thing that they watched, whether it is for good or ill. Uh, it would be awesome to have you. Don't don't tempt me, Frodo, because uh, <laughs> I, I I try and move through movies and waves. I love film, so for a while there, I was going through all my eighties action action movies, mm-hmm. and I hadn't seen it until I watched it a few months ago. But I watched Roadhouse a few months ago. Yep, and yep. like that movie just sticks in my head. It is simultaneously so bad and so good. And like, I, I'm, I have to watch it again to figure out how it does it, but it's, it's well, anyway, we, we yeah, don't have time yeah, yeah, to yeah. die to dive into it, but, but I will, uh, <laughs> I, I will definitely hit you up. I watch a couple movies a week. Nice. Cause iTunes is my best friend and uh, that's awesome. So yeah, we'll put links to, uh, to everything we can and show notes. So you guys can check that out to Matt's podcast. So you can go, here, the only movie podcast. It's the only one. The only uh, one. I, I think others should start them. And and when we do crossovers with other movie podcasts, it's really hard to sort of bend the dimensional space to late make it last an hour. Right. But somehow we've made it. We've made it thus far. So yeah. yeah. Well, that's the sign of a true professional. <laughs> and of course, uh, for those of you who uh, who know who are in the know who support the show at Patreon.com/slash Rule for Persuasion, Matt and I are going to keep talking for a few more minutes after the outro music in our special Zone of Truth segment. Um, and we will get to that in just a minute. I never prep people very well for this. Okay. And so my question is, and I kind of threw it to you before we start recording, but what do you want to talk about? We got a little bit of extra time. We could talk about movies. We could just keep talking about video games. Is there anything you're into? Have, do you have any pandemic hobbies that you've really gotten into? Uh, let's do the 3d printing stuff. Oh yes. We didn't even talk. Okay. There you go. Cause I'm, I'm deep very in excited. It now. 
Uh, I am by no means an expert, but I have opinions. <laughs> that's another that's another great podcast. <laughs> by no means an expert, but I have opinions. There you go. So that's what we'll do. If, if you support the show at patreon.com slash roll for persuasion, you get access not just to this episode's Zone of Truth segment, but to so many more. I don't know how many, but it's like 50, 60 at this point. I'm not sure, but go check it out because uh, I think they're all great. They're legitimately one of my favorite parts of the show. We get to chat about things that my guests are super duper into that we didn't have time for in the main episode. And uh, I happen to think it's pretty good. So support the show there. Get access to that Patreon feed and other fun stuff I'd like to do for my patrons throughout the year. I appreciate the support so that I can help put this show out. And uh, it gives me more of an excuse to talk to cool people about cool stuff they love. And of course, you can find everything you want to know about the show by going to rollpersuasion.com. You can follow me on all the major social media channels. And by all of them, I mean Twitter at rollpersuasion. Um, you can try and follow me somewhere else. Let me know who you end up talking to. I'm curious to, to find out. But I always love to chat with people on Twitter. Um, so feel free to come and join me there. You can email the show, andrew at rollpersuasion.com, should you feel like it. I don't know why you would, but you can. Thank you for listening to the show and for supporting the show and for uh, finding your nearest Apple device and going to Apple Podcasts and dropping a little review. Maybe maybe four stars, maybe five stars. If you find a way to drop six stars, go ahead because um, we appreciate that because the algorithm is tricky, y'all. And we need that support. <laughs> but uh, that is it. Until next time, guys. Enjoy your games. Thanks, everyone. And welcome back. We are in the zone of truth. Uh, my favorite segment of the show because I don't edit it. Um, I just let it ride. It just goes.